0: chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 um, this neighborhood that we prayed over this morning last Tuesday night um, the pastors of the city walked the neighborhood and we prayed over families who were on the street and um, we talked with the um, some of the families who live there who are believers. And we asked them, <clears throat> they're still, you know, we've had three, four murders in that neighborhood in less than a year. And one of the families said that as soon as the homework house left, everything, everything went crazy in the neighborhood. They felt like the covering was gone. And, um, and that just goes to show you that there is a covering, and just because there has been a covering doesn't mean it remains if we aren't still diligent about what we do in the neighborhood. Um, and as we walked, we asked them, could you just point out the homes that we really need to pray over? And there was 20 of us walking this little neighborhood. And the families that lived there would not point out the homes because of fear. They said, we're afraid that if they even see us point in that direction, that we will suffer consequences. So I really appreciate the fact that Emmy felt the move of the Holy Spirit to pray with that that neighborhood. David and Emily still do live there. Uh, Adrian and his wife Bree uh, still live in that neighborhood. And um, there are um, three families that go to the Spanish church at Foothill Community Church and um, they again are, um, there was a lady who led a Bible study there for years and um, she died a few months ago of cancer and so um, we just continue to pray for that neighborhood, continue to pray for the truth of the gospel. One of the things I've, I'm convinced of in this day is that um, the church has forgotten about the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel's not complicated. It, uh, it is simply this. It is God's grace demonstrated to us through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's and it's nothing more there doesn't need to be anything more and um, that's part of what Paul's talking about here in Galatians because again if you just just to review last week um, in chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 Paul talking to the Galatians now understand he has brought the gospel to them they accepted the gospel but then somebody came in after him and said Paul is not who he says he is Don't listen to him. He's not teaching you the right things. And so Paul, in defense of himself, says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. And when he says, which is not another, what Paul's saying is there can only be one gospel. There can't be two gospels. There can't be three gospels. There can only be one gospel. Just like there can only be one truth. There are not many truths. Um... Truth is absolute. Anything that deviates from absolute is no longer absolute. So there's only one truth. There's only one gospel. There's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. So Paul says that uh, other teachers are going to come and try and preach a different gospel. And um, he says it's not a gospel at all, but it's a perversion of truth, which is what I just said. Uh, He later says in Galatians 3, which we'll look at in a few weeks, that are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And this is talking about um, different people coming in saying the gospel requires more than grace, faith through grace in Christ Jesus. And remember I said they were called Judaizers because these guys believed that um, salvation could not be complete in in a Gentile until they had become Jews. So they had to be circumcised. And so they were saying Paul is not preaching a, a, a whole gospel, he's preaching a watered down gospel for fear of the repercussions that the Gentiles would give him if he required them to fulfill not just circumcision, but he also talks later about how they were also saying they had to observe all the holidays and all the feasts and all the regulations, which, frankly, I think are pretty cool. I like Passover, you know. I I, um, I like to do little dreadles in Hanukkah. We have them all over our house because we have a Jewish girl that lives in our house, so... So we celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas, and so, and Hanukkah is not one of the Jewish holidays, by the way, in the Bible, um, just so you know. Uh, but uh, so they were making it part of the requirement to be a part of the church and for their salvation. And so, you know, Paul says this: "Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing." In other words, he says, "Anything extra is not going to be a benefit for your life with regard to your relationship with Christ." He also says in Galatians 6, he says this, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So he's saying, look it, the reason they're requiring this is because they don't want to put up with persecution for the sake of the gospel that says Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. And they would receive persecution from the Jews. A uh, persecution of the Gentiles didn't come from the Gentiles. Persecution of the Gentiles came from the Jews, people who did not believe Jesus was Messiah. That's who Saul was. His job was to kill Christians, to go arrest them and bring them put them on trial. So they also insisted the Gentile believers keep all the Jewish fe- feasts, which I just said, which we'll look in Galatians 4. You observe the days and the months and the seasons and the years. So, So they thought that Paul's, gospel of justification justification by grace through faith alone was inadequate. Can I just tell you, it wasn't, and it still isn't. Salvation through grace, by grace, through faith alone in Jesus Christ is the gospel. It's nothing more, and it can definitely be nothing less. And so they added requirements. Uh, They made their version. to to make their version of the gospel stick, they had to discredit Paul. And, um, and had they done this, um, you know, they, they waited till Paul wasn't around. And they said, look, he's not a real apostle. He's a secondhand apostle. He wasn't really appointed by God. He was appointed by men. He's not one of the original 12. He wasn't a follower of Jesus when he was alive. He learned the gospel from people. And um, he's only teaching what people have taught him. And uh, his authority was not binding because his authority came from man and not from God. So that's just to review what we were talking about last week. And so Paul, as he begins, and of the two in Galatian, are Paul presenting his defense of his apostleship and of the gospel? And uh, so again, in in Galatians one one, he starts. Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's authority as Christ's apostle wasn't from men, but it was from Jesus alone. And then in Galatians 1.12, he says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's where we are. So as I look at this, the first thing I want to do is put myself in the place of the Galatian believers. So these... Galatians. Now remember, Galatia is a region. So it's a lot of towns, a lot of cities, a lot of different people, a lot of different traditions they grew up in. So if you grew up in a tradition and um, they worship multiple gods, they had all kinds of stuff going on, and, and Paul presents the gospel and says, This is the one true God, and this is the way you have a relationship with it. And then somebody else comes in who says, Look, we've been sent from the church in Jerusalem we've been sent from the big boys to let you know that what paul has taught you is not correct if i'm a galatian i'm going to wonder who's right and who's wrong i'm i'm just normal human tendency as god these, so all of this confusion and wrong maybe maybe we do need to get circumcised and so all of this confusion and it appears because paul says you know in in um, in verse seven, 6 and 7, when he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you. So it appears that these people, these Galatians, are easily swayed. It's like whoever has the best argument for the day is the guy we're going to follow. And Paul's shocked. He said, I can't believe how easy it was for these Judaizers to come in and just tell you I'm wrong, that I'm not from God, that I'm from man, and you're going to believe what they said, and you're going to do what they tell you to do without even checking, without even finding out if what they say is true. And quite frankly, if I was a Galatian, if I lived in Antioch or I lived in Lystra or in one of these cities, I would get together with my group and say, "Okay, let's let's figure this out. What's going on? And so Paul has to make a really powerful case to reestablish his credibility in their minds. And that's why he's writing the letter. He he can't be there with them all personally. Because remember, he's not writing to a city. He's writing to a region. And so he's writing to multiple cities. He's writing to multiple churches. Um, You know, and so obviously there has to be a question is, is there a contradiction among the apostles? Because the Judaizers were saying that they had the authority from the apostles in Jerusalem. And yet Paul's coming and saying, I'm an apostle. And here's what I say the gospel is. And so one of the questions they'd ask is, okay, we got apostles in Jerusalem, we got Paul here saying he's an apostle, and we got these Judaizers telling us that that neither one of these are, are really teaching right, and, and that they have the authority and they have the endorsement of the church in Jerusalem. And so, but because the messages don't match, they've got to sit down and try and figure it out. And so even when the question of Paul's authority is settled, there's still there's still this doubting that looms as they consider these questions. And so is there disunity among the apostles? Are, are they all not on the same page? Um, if two apostles preach different gospels, the foundation of the church is blown up. It's not cracked. It's blown up. If we, if, 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 I were to teach one gospel this week and we brought somebody else in and says, you know, what Rick tells you is is only half true. Uh, There's something else you have to do. And if they're really persuasive and they've got a a big following, if if you're not grounded in the word of God, there's going to be doubts that begin to rise up. And okay, who is telling me the truth? And quite frankly, today, we have a lot of that going on in the church. That's why I say, I believe we're at a time when God is calling us back to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it it was a problem. When you look at the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth, in Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love. So Paul acknowledged that the church in Ephesus, that the foundation of everything they did was love. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he's saying, look at guys, spiritual gifts are great. And I love the fact that you're pursuing them all. And I, and I wish that you would desire prophecy more. But he says, look, at, although I speak in tongues of men and angels, if I have not love, I'm nothing more than noise. And so even in the early church, there were these additions, there was this. This propensity to take and try and add something onto the gospel, trying to make it something it wasn't. And the reason I talk about um, the Ephesians is because we find out later in Revelation 2 that, um, well, in Acts 20, when Paul had told them, you know, there's going to be wolves that come in amongst you. You guys got to watch out for it. That in in, uh, Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus, he says, look, you guys. You've done a great job of hating the works of the Nicolaitans. I thought, oh, so hey, you've kept the, the wolves out, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. So these guys that Paul admonished saying you are rooted and grounded in love had lost love, and I think that's what happened, has happened in the church. I read a book. This isn't in the notes, so you're going to have to listen to me and not follow along. Um, I read a book. I can't remember it was the end of last year beginning of this year, uh, but it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the whole premise of the book is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based upon relationship. It's based upon loving our neighbor. God says everything we are commanded to do is based upon love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is predicated upon love. And and. The greatest demonstration of love is community. And too many people today are caught up in, you know, Paul says, faith, hope, and love. These three remain. Faith is important. Hope, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Hope is what gets us through the end. But Paul says the greatest of these is love. Because faith is not going to persuade somebody to come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hope, you know, people want hope. But the thing that gives people hope is an unconditional love. And the way we show unconditional love is to meet people where they are and love them until we have the opportunity to speak into their heart and into their life. That's the simplicity of the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're charismatic or you believe the gifts don't exist today. It doesn't believe that if you know, we choose God for salvation or if God chose us for salvation. None of that matters. What matters is salvation is salvation. And Paul is saying, guys, there is one gospel. There is one thing necessary for salvation. It's salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so, um, and he goes on to say the whole edifice of the church is built upon this. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and we're going to look at that not next week, but the following week. Having the church, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Paul is now going to deal with this serious question. And he has to do it carefully. And he has to do it with integrity. In other words, too often we try to prove our point by disproving disqualifying doing something to he doesn't speak against the judaizers in such a way that he makes them out to be demons or evil because the bottom line is the judaizers did believe that christ was the messiah they did believe that jesus was raised from the dead they did believe that salvation did come through confessing christ as your savior so paul couldn't attack them because part of what they're saying was true. What he was attacking was the part that wasn't true. So he was he had to be very careful. He had to maintain his independence from the Jerusalem apostles to protect himself from being charged as being a second-hander. In other words, he, he couldn't say, he couldn't identify too much from with them because everybody would say, well, look at you are who you are because of them. And on the other hand, he had to show the gospel that he preached was the gospel that was being preached by the apostles in Jerusalem it was the same gospel so everything paul says in in this section is open to public verification in other words he's he's putting it out there for the for the galatians to figure out so he he the, the, and the way paul deals with the question of the possible disunity among the apostles we're going to look at it like this. In verse 1 and 2, he tells them he tells them when and with whom and why he went to Jerusalem. Because the Judaizers said he came from Jerusalem because the apostles there taught him and trained him and declared him to be an apostle. So he wants to let them know why he was in Jerusalem. Secondly, he wants to describe his encounter with the Judaizers, these false brothers, and, and against whom he's standing his ground. So he wants to... to declare his independence from the false teachers. And then finally he wants to describe, describe that he did meet with the apostles and how the apostles did endorse his ministry and have not endorsed the ministry of the Judaizers. So there's two things, two, two main points of this text are found in verses six and nine. And I've kind of combined them together. And this is what it says. Those who were of repute added nothing to me. So in other words, the apostles in Jerusalem did not add anything, give Paul anything to give him credibility, okay? When they perceived the grace that was given to me, James, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles And they to the circumcised. So Paul says, When I went to Jerusalem, here's the deal. The church in Jerusalem felt their calling was to the Jews. Peter was primarily Jews. And they said, Okay, because remember, until Peter has the encounter with Cornelius, Cornelius, you know, is told to go, and Peter has the vision: arise and eat, nothing is unclean, and they come. And Cornelius and his entire household is saved and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the word gets back to James and the guys at Jerusalem and they call Peter back to Jerusalem and say, what are you doing? Why are you preaching the gospel to Gentiles? Because they consider the Gentiles to be dogs. And Peter said, look at everything that the Lord gave to us as salvation, the Lord gave to them. So it was at that moment that the church in Jerusalem realized that the gospel was not just for Jews, but it was for Gentiles as well. But their call, their ministry, their relationship, their house churches, everything was based upon Jews. Paul's wasn't in Jerusalem. Paul left and he went to Asia Minor. Uh, He went to North Africa. He went to all these places. He went to the Middle East taking the gospel. And so Paul said, look it. When I came to them, they said, okay, we we endorse your ministry. You go to the Gentiles and we're going to continue to go to the Jews. And so Paul's main point is that after 14 years, now remember, he didn't, he didn't visit these guys until 14 years after he had been encountered on the road to Damascus. Three years, he was um, by himself in Arabia, just him and God and, and God, the Holy Spirit, sitting down and allowing Paul to go through all the scripture that he knew Um, from his time being trained as a Pharisee under Gamaliel and taking those scriptures and applying them to Jesus. And so Paul being trained by the Holy Spirit, he says, he makes it clear, he says it over and over, I received what I received by revelation. I didn't receive it from men. I received it from the Holy Spirit who took the word of God and showed me in the Word of God how Jesus is Messiah and how salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. No man taught me that. The Holy Spirit taught it to me by revelation. And so um, they, they approved his work, sending him to the Gentiles, saying this, that the gospel that we are preaching to the Jews is the same gospel Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. There's not a gospel for Jews and there's a separate gospel for Gentiles. The, The affirmation from the Church of Jerusalem was saying this, what Paul is teaching the Gentiles is exactly what we're teaching the Jews. And salvation for Jews and salvation for Gentiles is exactly the same. And works of the flesh are not a requirement for either. The Jews didn't have to do anything to seal their salvation except confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Gentiles didn't have to do anything beyond confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, here we go. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So, that's all laying the foundation. So, Paul writes, he says, Then after 14 years I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation... And communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So there's a few things here. Now, Barnabas is a Jew. We already know about Barnabas. So Paul said, and, and the, the Jews, the church in Jerusalem, gave Paul Barnabas. In other words, they said, you You, you shouldn't do this alone. Here's a brother, he's an encourager. He's a great encourager. We're going to give him to you, and he's going to go with you. But Paul is a, is a mentor. He's a discipler also. So Paul brings with him this young man, and he's probably in his early 20s, named Titus. And Titus is Greek. Okay, He's not a Jew. So Paul has Barnabas, and he has Titus. And he takes them to Jerusalem to present the gospel that he's been preaching to the council in Jerusalem, to the authorities there. And he said, I didn't do it in a public setting. I got alone, just them and me because I didn't want to create some sort of scene to where the Judaizers were challenging me and we started arguing back and forth and the point would be missed. So he came and I met with them privately, you know, those of reputation, and he has Titus with him. And the reason he brings Titus is this. He wants them to see that Titus is a disciple of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and he hasn't been circumcised. He's a Gentile. Titus is, is, um, is so in tune with, with the discipleship that he received with Paul that Paul eventually makes Titus the head over all the churches in Crete. And we have a book in the Bible called Titus, which is a letter Paul writes to Titus. And the letter is all about one thing. Um, What are the credentials necessary for eldership and leadership in all the house churches that you're overseeing? So he tells them, you know what, that an elder must be. And he goes down a list of the requirements of leadership. Paul writes, Paul had another Gentile disciple named Timothy. Now, Timothy was a half-breed. He was half-Jewish and and half-Gentile. So he was still considered Gentile because his father was Gentile. We don't think Timothy was ever circumcised because his dad wasn't a Jew. But Timothy also oversaw a number of churches. We believe Timothy pastored the church at Antioch, which was the largest church. But Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, also similar to what he writes to, to Titus, on the requirements for the leadership of those who would be over the house churches throughout the city or region. And so Paul didn't go. There, there's four things that I see in this verse here, four observations that I think clarify what he's saying. Number one, Paul didn't go to Jerusalem because he had second thoughts about his gospel and wanted to make sure it was true. So he wasn't going there for verification for himself. He didn't have any doubts. Um, that would have played right into the hands of the Judaizers. If he had come and say, okay, guys, This is what I've been preaching, and I need you to tell me if it's right. That would disqualify everything Paul had said about receiving it from revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and, And he said, so he received his gospel through revelation 14 years earlier in Arabia. Number two, and I already addressed this a little bit. Why did he take Titus? So Titus, to me, is exhibit A of Paul's preaching. He says, this is the gospel I'm preaching, and here's the fruit of what I've preached. He's a Greek. He's not circumcised according to Old Testament laws, and yet he is a brother in Christ by faith. Um, Is he going to be forced to be circumcised by the impossible, by the impossibles, by the apostles in Jerusalem or not? So really, he was bringing him as, as a model to show that the Judaizers were wrong. Because if the Judaizers were right, Paul would have to write to the church at Galatia, I brought Titus with me, and while we're in Jerusalem, the council made me circumcise him. He didn't. So that was another proof of Paul preaching a gospel to the Gentiles that was the same gospel that the apostles were teaching in Jerusalem. So there's no better way to win your argument than with a real person. He didn't have to do a hypothetical he said look at titus is here the apostles didn't make him get circumcised he's still a brother than lord in fact he's going to oversee all the churches in crete so just so you know so number three peter james or cephas and john were reputed to be pillars in the church so everybody throughout um, asia minor throughout turkey head church was still in all these regions Everybody knew that even though Paul was preaching the gospel, the head church was still in Jerusalem. And the three guys who were the pillars of the church were James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter and John, who were Jesus's closest followers of the 12 who followed after him. So the guys in in Galatia knew this, or the people in Galatia knew this. So Paul's telling, he's saying, look it. In verse 2, he said, I had a private meeting with the pillars of the church. And verse 4 and 5, which we'll look at in a few minutes, tells us why the private meeting was probably necessary. And that the false brothers who insisted on having Titus circumcised um, would not be in a mood to hear Paul's argument. And um, sometimes the chiefs have to deliberate uh, in order to um, keep the braves in order. And so Paul wanted to meet just with the leaders, he didn't want the people who are not apostles because none of the Judaizers claimed to be apostles. So none of the Judaizers claimed to have more authority or equal authority with the apostles. They only claimed that the gospel required more. So Paul wanted to, to meet with the big guys and not have anybody there that's going to argue. So Paul didn't need to confirm the gospel that he was preaching. What he needed to confirm was that his gospel and the gospel of the church of Jerusalem were the same. It was united. So there's two implications in in verses 1 and 2. Number one, I believe one of the things the church is missing is confrontation to confront disagreement or blind weaknesses head on too often in the church because, for whatever reasons, and if, if we're going to be biblical people, we have to know how to confront and love. In other words, if somebody is doing something that um, is a blind spot in their life, or maybe not a blind spot, maybe they're just blatantly wrong, if we truly love them, if they truly are part of a body and part of a community, we have a responsibility, a biblical responsibility, to confront them. Paul could have just said, you guys work it out. You guys, you know what I've taught, you work it out with the Judaizers. But Paul felt like he needed to confront this second gospel, this false gospel, so that it could be exposed for what it was and that he would be there to have the, the, the pillars in Jerusalem support that they were in unity on the same gospel. If someone is wrong or the ministry of the church is in jeopardy, we must, in grace, present our position. And most people don't do that naturally. Let's face it. Most people do not like confrontation. The people that do are people I do not want to be my friends. There are just certain people that want to fight and argue about everything. And frankly, I don't have the energy But if I see something wrong, if there's something that needs to be questioned, then we have a responsibility. The fear of conflict or the fear of offense hinders our confronting one another in love is not a foundation of faith in Christ. Um, I have a relationship with a lot of pastors, and um, recently I've had to talk to a pastor friend who... um, Always talks about being part of the team. But whenever pastors are together, he tries to take control. And wants all the pastors of the city to jump on board and let's do this. Jump on board and let's do this. And nothing ever comes to pass. He takes an hour of our time making this huge presentation and then nothing happens. And and and, and he, he texts me or calls me quite often and says, what do you think about this? Why don't we? And uh, I finally had to say, my brother, my friend, you are always talking about the necessity of team, but you're not a team player. It it always comes back to you, even when we're in meetings and I ask you to pray, and I ask you to pray specifically for one thing, you will preach, and then you will pray. And so that you need to, if you're gonna talk about being a community and about being part of a team, They need to understand what's required to be a part of the team. It was hard for me to say that. And and quite frankly, the Lord had told me to talk to him about it six weeks earlier, and I kept putting it off. I kept saying, no, now's not the time. No, this isn't a good time. No, I can't do it now. But I finally had to do it. Did it hurt our relationship? Not at all. He calls me more now. You know? and runs everything by me. I am not. I mean, he's a pastor. Come on, you don't have to run things by me. Just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and do what the Lord says to do. But but that's something that had to be done. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Paul later in Galatians in chapter 5, he says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there's no law. Um, these... We have to understand, if, if we refuse to confront in love somebody who's doing something wrong, then we're not walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Because that's the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit is. Um, we confront with long-suffering, but kindness and goodness, we, we, we confront because we love, because we want joy, we want peace, we want unity. And that's... Um, They're what we experience um, when we don't look for Christ beyond our power. We we experience disunity. So whatever peace we maintain in personal relationships by avoiding needing confrontation is going to be superficial. Because here's what's going to happen. Eventually, you're going to not want to be around that person. Eventually, you're going to look for a way to not have as close a relationship. And that's totally contradiction to what the Bible's all about. The body of Christ needs to be a body of Christ and my message to the pastors every time we get together and again I'm not head of the pastors I'm just one voice but my message every time we get together is men and women God has called us to pastor a city let's pastor the city together. it's great what you're doing in your congregations it's great what you're doing at your buildings but The city needs pastors. We need to be on the same page, doing the same thing, loving the same thing, and not always trying to compete or trying to come up with a better idea. Let's pray together. And it's interesting. Here's here's kind of the crux of it all. How many people in ministry just want to do, and they don't want to wait, and they don't want to pray before you do it? we remind people a lot, you know, kind of the poster child for successful inner city ministry, not only in Azusa, but the model's been taken a lot of places, is the homework house. And everybody looks where it is now, but we have to take people back to where it was when it began to let them know, first of all, God showed us a neighborhood, but secondly, the two women who started it met every week for a year and prayed over that neighborhood about how God would have it happen. They had the idea a year prior. They could have just thrown stuff together and gone and done it. But they prayed and they prayed and they prayed until they had an agreement of a direction God wanted them to go and begin to baby step in the simplicity of that direction. 20 years later, it's alive, viable, fruitful, probably beyond anything we ever expected. Implement it right away. And we say, when I say, why don't we meet together for six months and pray about it? But, but, but wait, that, we're, we're going to lose six months. No, we're going to lose six months if we just jump in and do something and there's no profitability to it. If we're not living out the gospel living the way God wants us to. By prayer, we know it. And by prayer, we accomplish it. And so... Um, so that was the first thing with Paul. Um, if if that if we avoid biblical loving conflict, um, we're really not living as the body of Christ. And so, and secondly, we ought to care about doctrinal biblical unity, especially on points that are crucial. Um, Paul never questioned. The salvation of the Judaizers. He never said these guys are heretics or so they don't know Jesus. He questioned them on one point, one point of doctrine that they had to observe Jewish laws in order and be circumcised in order to be fully saved. He said, You got the first half right, you got the second half wrong. He loved them through the first half, he confronted them on the second half. He never he never, said, he never said to the apostles, we don't have any record of saying, you need to kick these guys out of the church. You need to, to go around and follow them wherever they go and tell everybody, liar, liar, liar. These guys are not telling you the truth. All he's saying is, make sure they understand that the gospel that you are teaching and I am teaching is the same gospel and their gospel makes it too hard to be saved. So then he goes on. Uh, and, and here's the thing. So, this unity of God's people on important matters of faith should send us to prayer and the study of Scripture. And we need to stand up and praise the unity and the coherence of truth. So, so Paul begins to write about these false brethren. And he says in verse 3 and 5, Yet not even Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's saying, Look, it, I had a private meeting with the apostles. Titus was with me. He's a Gentile. He's a Greek who's become a believer. And they did not say Titus had to be circumcised. So again, he's bringing Titus as exhibit A. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might contend with you. So Paul says, look, these guys are going behind the scenes. They're being real secretive. They're being stealth about what they're doing. They're trying to rob the liberty of salvation, saying that the law is required for salvation to be full. And we didn't submit to their teaching, he said, for even an hour. We had Titus. When I was before the leaders, we stood there. We did not submit to the teaching of the Judaizers for, for even an hour. So Why does Paul include this in the letter? He could have, you know, he could have just gone straight from verse 2 to verse 6. Why does he have to do verses 3 through 5? Because I don't think the only reason is to show Titus didn't have to be circumcised. He could have said that in one sentence. He says, Titus is with me, look it. They didn't make him circumcised, and so I was right, and they were wrong. But Paul needed to show the Galatian Christians that they're all are false brothers. Now, here's the key, false brothers. That's a hard one for us to swallow. How can they be brothers and be false? Because they are brothers because they do believe that the only way to have fellowship with God is through salvation in Christ. But they're false in that they add works onto the requirement of salvation. So Paul needed to show the Galatian Christians that that they came from Jerusalem, that they insisted on circumcision for salvation, and that they didn't. So Paul, and so, I mean, Peter, James, and John. So Paul says he didn't submit to these faults um, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. So if Paul had given in to the demands of the false brothers, if Paul had said, okay, you guys are right, I'm gonna circumcise Titus. You and I wouldn't be here today. The gospel would've been a false gospel. It would've totally crumbled because it wasn't the gospel the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching and teaching and the church is built upon the apostles and and the prophets. And so, um, our right standing for God was totally paid for by the death of Jesus on Calvary, period. Don't ever, ever doubt that, forget that, change that. That's what it's based upon. It can be enjoyed through faith in Him. There's no additional requirement. You know, there are people that teach you have to be baptized in order for your salvation to be complete. Because it says, unless, when it talks about baptism in Matthew, it says, unless you are born of water, of blood and of water, your salvation is not complete. And what they're talking about is, 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 um, I have to read the verse exactly, but when it talks about blood and water, it's talking about what's ne- what happens in childbirth. There's water and there's blood that takes place in childbirth, and we're born again, we're born the same way, but s- baptism is not salvation. Baptism is a testimony of salvation. But there are those who teach. Um, that was part of the doctrine that started the Baptist Church. They were called Baptists because they believed that unless you were baptized in water, you weren't saved. And, and some went so far to say that if you belonged to one Baptist Church and you moved to a new city and started going to another Baptist Church, you had to be baptized again because you were baptized into fellowship. You were baptized into salvation. So there, are, are they not brothers? Because they see baptism different than we do, does that make them not brothers? No, it doesn't. Because they still believe salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. They just have some stuff that, you know, has to be corrected. And it does harm people. Because if someone, you know, there'd be the argument, well they they accepted Jesus as their savior today and they're gonna get baptized next Sunday but they got hit by a car on Saturday and they died. So because they weren't baptized before they died, were they saved or were they not saved? They were saved. So those are those types of teachings. We have to make sure we know the word of God. So any requirement that causes us to rely on our work and not Christ's work is the end of the God, work of Jesus. If our salvation requires that we be circumcised, it's not a complete salvation. If our salvation requires that we have to speak in tongues before we're saved, there's a lot of people in this room even They wouldn't be saved. So we need to know that our salvation is based upon the work of the cross and the work of the cross alone and the resurrection from the grave. And then he describes his meeting with the apostles. But he says, From those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, adding nothing to me, but on the contrary... When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for as the gospel. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to be circumcised, all to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given me, They gave me Barnabas and the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. So Paul starts out, he says, look it, there are these three guys who, I guess they're something. Everybody says they're the pillars, they're the leaders, but it doesn't matter to me if they're the pillars. God doesn't show favoritism to anybody, you know? um, For those who seem to be something, added nothing to me. So the fact that I met with them doesn't in any way make me any more important, doesn't give me any more viability. He said, I, before God, am the same as they are before God. In fact, it's Paul who tells us later, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male, nor female, slave, or free in the kingdom. That we all have the same position. Now, there are different leaders. There are the gifts of the, of the leaders of the church. But as far as our salvation is concerned, as far as our relationship with God is concerned, it doesn't matter if your name is Billy Graham or if your name is Rick McDonald. We have the same exact relationship with God through Jesus, period. Now, at the end, yeah, we we get different rewards based upon how we loved and how we served. But Jesus even said, look, if you've been faithful in a few things, I'm going to make you ruler over many. So it's not even based upon quantity. It's based upon faithfulness. And there are people who have spent their life. Um, my wife and I are reading a book together right now on... Actually, she's reading it to me, so that's how we read it together. Um, but it's... it's uh, Heidi Baker's story of how she and her husband uh, ended up going to Africa and what they did in Mozambique and what they did in Malawi and, and what they did in that whole region, and the stuff. I mean, we read what they went through for the sake of the gospel, the sickness, the I mean, all the stuff, and we, we sit there and we go, "Oh my goodness, am I a wimp or what? You know? We complain if the air conditioner isn't cooling the house fast enough, you know? Um, Just when you look at the thing that that, uh, Heidi Baker and her husband have gone through to take the gospel to the poorest of the poor, to plant churches in dumps, literally to take scrap tin and wood and to put up some sort of structure to minister to people who live off of the stuff people throw away and to see revival come, see people get saved, see healings, to see all these things, to see the Mozambique government come to them and say, look it, we have tried everything and the only thing that's working in our nation is what you're doing. So we want to support you and what you, however we can help you Do what you're doing. We're going to help you. And it worked up until a few years ago when the government changed, and they are not in Mozambique anymore. They've been run out of the country. But people built compounds for them on the water. And and every place Heidi, they always took the Jesus film. God bless the Jesus film. The Jesus film has led so many people to the Lord. But what she does, Heidi's ministry was she would go to a new dump. That's where she would find the poor. And she would look for someone who was deaf. And she would pray for them to receive their hearing. Every time she found a deaf person and prayed for their hearing to be restored, it was restored. And the moment everybody heard that that deaf person, who they all knew, had their hearing restored by this woman praying over them, they wanted to hear what this woman had to say. And because of signs and wonders, people were drawn to see the Jesus movie, and then she would give an invitation, and everybody would get saved. And, and so that's, you know, Paul said that, the, they said, we're going to take care of the Jews, you take care of the Gentiles, here's our only requirement. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very things, in, in their great spirit. You know, you remember when, Um, The apostles, in in their great spirituality, um, rebuked um, Mary Magdalene for taking such an expensive perfume balm and putting it on the feet of Jesus and and wiping it with her hair. And the disciples said, what a waste. You can sell that and we can give the money to the poor. And Jesus' response was, the poor you will always have with you. I'm here just for a while. THE POOR IS A HEART OF THE GOSPEL. When, WHEN JOHN THE BAPTIST SENT HIS DISCIPLES TO ASK JESUS if, IF HE'S THE MESSIAH, AND HE SAID, GO TELL JOHN WHAT YOU SEE, ONE OF THE THINGS WAS THE GOSPEL IS BEING PREACHED TO NOT THE RICH, NOT THE FAMOUS, NOT THE CLEAN, NOT THE HAPPY, TO THE POOR. Um, and, I, AND i TELL YOU RIGHT NOW THAT IN MEETING WITH THE POLICE DEPARTMENT, MEETING WITH THE Corps OF ENGINEERS, MEETING WITH LA COUNTY, the thing, the biggest problem we have right now in California is homelessness. And poor people exempt. We are overrun with homeless, poor people. And look, at we can sit here and debate on how they got where they are and why they continue to live how they live. And some of them know the Bible better than I do, or at least the parts of the Bible that I know they know. They've been preached at, they've been loved, they've prayed to receive Jesus, but they're broken. They haven't received freedom. And we still have a responsibility to love them, to care for them, you know? Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. That's what the gospel is. That's who we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. And we are such a blessed blessed people. We have, I mean, look what we're doing right now. We're sitting in padded chairs in an air-conditioned room, and some of us are always already wondering what we're going to eat in the next 15 minutes, because we have so many choices to choose from. And there are many more people in the nations who are standing on dirt floors without air conditioning in sweltering heat. TO HEAR THE GOSPEL, AND THEY'LL STAND FOR HOURS AND HEAR IT, AND THEY'RE NOT WONDERING WHAT RESTAURANT THEY'RE GOING TO GO TO. THEY'RE WONDERING WHAT DAY THEY'RE GOING TO GET FOOD. WE NEED TO BE EVER-MINDFUL OF WHY GOD HAS BLESSED US AND WHAT WE DO WITH THAT BLESSING. PAUL SAID, LOOK at I WAS EAGER TO DO THAT. I WAS EAGER TO TAKE AND TO MINISTER TO THE POOR. AND HE JUST WANTED THE PEOPLE IN GALATIA TO KNOW, LOOK at THESE GUYS, who have this reputation in Jerusalem, it doesn't matter to me because we're all the same before God, but look at these guys who you all give credence to as pillars have said that the gospel I preach is the same gospel they preach and the gospel they preach to the Jews is the same gospel they want me to preach to you and to preach to all Gentiles. And um, you know, Peter, James and John endorsed Paul's message And Paul stood his ground that the truth of the gospel might be preserved from us. And we need to not worship. Remember, there's another time Paul says, you're all arguing some Sam of Paul, some Sam of Apollos. Look, we're not supposed to build statues or monuments or name churches after Paul, but we, we need to be pretty grateful for Paul. Because of Paul contending for the gospel and and going with Barnabas to the Gentiles, you know, um, it's a firm, solid foundation for us. There should be a warm place in our hearts for this great man of God. Um, And because just like Jesus who came before him, Paul lived and died for the gospel. Period. Um, And You know, I'm not not saying we owe gratitude to Paul for the gospel because the gospel is not Paul's gospel. The gospel belongs to God. God is the one who gave us the gospel. God is the one. um, God conceived the gospel before the foundations of the earth. We read that last week in Ephesians 1. Paul says, just as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him. And God fulfilled his plan for the gospel by sending his son to die for us and then by raising him from the dead. So God also chose the apostles, set them apart, and they did the preaching of the gospel, and he preached the gospel through them. Um, When Paul was born, according to what Paul says, it was a work of God. Galatians 1.15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace... When Paul was called to be an apostle, it was the work of God. Verse 16, chapter 1. To reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And when Paul preached, it was God at work. And this is what Paul says when he writes to the church of Corinth in his first letter. 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, By the grace of God, I am what I am. The first Popeye. Um, I am what I am. And And some of you get that, some of you don't. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. When Paul challenged the Judaizers, the false brothers, it was God at work in Paul that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. So here are my final thoughts. Think about this. If God worked before the foundation of the world, God's plan was before He ever said, let there be light, before the Bible ever said in the beginning. If God worked in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if God worked at the Jerusalem Council to affirm the ministry of Paul and to affirm ministry more importantly to Gentiles because of the affirmation where where we are. If God has worked over the past 2,000 years, if God worked in my teaching today that the truth of the gospel will be preserved preserved in you, is this not still an incomparable challenge to give your life to the spreading of the gospel? I go back to to what I started with and that we need to get back to the simplicity of the gospel somewhere along the line. And it happened, I guess, in every generation. But I remember in my generation, uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ and through Young Life, our mandate was to go and to present the four spiritual laws. I remember many nights, I mean, Chick Tracks, um, every, every year, um, well, for eight years straight. We'll see, not, not eight, that's an exaggeration. Six years straight. I went to the Rose Parade, and I went down for one reason to hand out chick gospels, and to win people to Jesus. But I have to tell you, as I look back, my motivation was not love. My motivation was to get people saved, to be obnoxious as I had to be, to argue with them if I had to, to prove myself right, and to prove them wrong. And I think that's kind of been the mantra for for the church for many years. That's why I go back and I talk about this book that that I read called The Gospel Has a House Key. And the whole premise of this book is that it's breaking bread together, it's living next to somebody, being their friend, being concerned and caring about their life, and in that process, finding the opportunity to let them know what it is in your life that causes you to be who you are. Not... The throw over the track and say, "I'm here to tell you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and then we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is part of our responsibility. But if we do that, and our motivation is not love, and you let, let's be honest, you can't truly love somebody you don't know." When and follow my thought. When Jesus says to love your enemies, you can't have an enemy without a relationship. Somebody cannot be your enemy if there's not something they've done to create enmity between the two of you. There has to be a relationship there, and you're to love that person who has become your enemy. And in that loving, our loving them is not beating them over the head with, The gospel is grace through faith in Christ alone. Jesus said the gospel is when they're naked, clothe them. When they're cold, give them a jacket. When they're hungry, feed them. When they're sick, visit them. When they're in prison, go to them. And in that process of loving them, there will come the opportunity to share the truth. And if we undertake to preserve and spread the good news of Christ for others, God will work in you and God will work for you. And I just encourage you. I know we have house churches and and we're always inviting people to our house for house church. But here's part of our problem. They know we're pastors and unfortunately they don't trust us because we're pastors they believe we're inviting them to our house to preach at them. And so we're learning to have friendship and fellowship and do a lot of stuff before we say, hey, we got a bunch of friends we'd like you to meet. We meet every other week for dinner. we just love you to come and join us for dinner. Every one of us should be having those types of conversations and those types of relationships because that's what the gospel is. The gospel comes with a house key. The gospel comes, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot preach the gospel without relationship. Now there are there are divine moments of intervention. That's why evangelists were given to the church. That's why Billy Graham could stand in front of 10,000 people or 100,000 people and preach, and 20,000 would get saved, because there is the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to convict, and there are times for evangelists. But if you ever worked in a Billy Graham crusade, crusade trying to figure we spent two or three months before the crusade trying to figure out how to establish relationship with those who came forward. It wasn't, let's get them saved and give them a Bible and get them to fill out the cards so we have this great number. How are we going to get them into fellowship, into relationship to make sure their salvation grows in their life and sticks? And it, is, IT WAS ALWAYS A PROBLEM. AND AS EFFECTIVE AS HIS MINISTRY WAS, they, HE WILL TELL YOU THAT HIS BIGGEST HEARTBREAK WAS THE FACT THAT SO FEW WHO CAME FORWARD IN STADIUMS ENDED UP IN FELLOWSHIP WITH OTHER CHRISTIANS. WE NEED, THAT'S, that's OUR CALL. OUR CALL is, IS, AS PAUL WAS HERE, IS TO HAVE RELATIONSHIP, IS TO HAVE FELLOWSHIP, is to, as St. Francis of Assisi said, preach Christ always, use words when necessary. That's how we're supposed to live our life. So, if we do this, there's going to be a unified, divinely inspired, apostolic witness to the greatest events in history. That the Son of God died for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day, to save forever those who trust him. People, myself included, are always longing for revival. Um, First, let me say, the best revival takes place in your living room. And if people really got what they think they're asking for, they have no idea what they're in for. And when I read missionary stories about revivals, oh my goodness, you think it was a mess before they got saved. It is a bigger mess after they get saved, because now they're going to be at your doorstep. Now they're going to be your friend. Now you're going to have to tell them this, this, and that, and live life with them and help them through their brokenness. I had one more story. I had a a young man who actually accepted Christ in our living room at House Church last month. And he's married, and he's struggling, and, and we're trying to help him through. And I've met with his wife, who's not a believer, and just shared with her that without Jesus, you're not going to be able to save your marriage. You're not going to be able to, to do what you want. And, and uh, he was raised in a Christian home, but got addicted to drugs, and we're trying to walk him out of it. And So I've been meeting with him. I met with him again this week. And he says, OK, I've decided I can do this on my own. He said, I can stop doing the meth on my own. As of today, I'm not going to take it anymore. You can drug test me every week. But I don't need to go through any type of deliverance or any prayer or have any relationship with Jesus to stop doing drugs. I'm strong. I can do it on my own. I said, you are so deceived. You are so deceived. I said, I hope you're the one person in all of history that that works for. But it doesn't work. Because if it worked, you would have never got in the mess in the first place. And I sat there, and I shared, and I shared, and I loved. And he's crying while I'm talking to him. I mean, tears are just pouring down his cheek. And he's looked at me and said, I'm going to do it my way, and walked out of my office. Now, we'll still love him. Was his salvation real that day? I hope so. You know? He needs to be discipled. He needs to be set free. His wife needs to get saved. But that's what the gospel's all about. I can't say, now that you have rejected what I've told you, I reject you. So I've had to tell them, look it, I'm still, I'll still be here to pray with you. I still wanna meet with you guys to try and restore your marriage. And, but I'm, you just need to know up front that when we meet, my, my, my counsel isn't gonna change. My story isn't gonna change. My answer isn't gonna change. It's gonna be the same answer and I'll do whatever I need to do to help you live out that answer. And um, we'll see what happens. Because eventually, as much as you love them, there are those who say, I don't want it. And they'll just go their own way and look for somebody who will encourage their choices. And so, <clears throat> but that's what we're called to do. That's what the gospel called to be. Bring them into our home, love them present the gospel to them in a real and living way and help them grow and if we're not doing that then we need to ask ourselves why why because we're pretty spoiled i'll just let me rephrase that i'm pretty spoiled i can't speak for you your life may suck but my i'm i'm pretty spoiled life's pretty easy let's pray Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that um, you show us how to confront in love, and the necessity uh, to confront when there are things that are not right, the power of the gospel. You show us, God, how to love people simply by being their friend. And so, God, may, may our epitaph be that they loved well, and that because of that love, lives were changed so we thank you and we ask it in jesus name amen